This show is brought to you by hospicechaplaincy.com. Promoting excellency in professional hospice chaplaincy. For more information, you can visit the website hospicechaplaincy.com. You can find the Hospice Chaplaincy Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Music. We are your hosts, Joe Newton. And I'm Saul Abema. listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Thank you once again uh, for listening. We are continuing with our series on age-specific therapeutic interventions for hospice patients. Uh, in our previous episodes, we talked about the elderly adults, uh, the middle-aged adults, and now we are talking about youth, children, and infants. Saul, you know, there's an implied but not plainly expressed expectation in our culture that a parent will die before the child. I hear that from my mom all the time. <laughs> you don't die on me now. Yeah. And it all comes back to the idea that there is an orderliness in our universe that seems to be undermined when this expectation is unmet. It is unnatural, we believe, that age, a young child, any child by that matter, dies out of turn from their parent. We come across families who have had children die all the time. And we go to the elder of the family, whether it's a grandparent or the parent, and you know that by just even bringing up that child's name that something has happened because uh, it's like a black cloud all of a sudden comes and it just brings nothing but sadness and, of course, unmet unmet dreams. Uh you know, uh, just thinking about that, even within the African culture, it's just like that. It's the same. When a child dies before the parent, uh, it's dying out of turn. Mm -hmm. There's a sense of injustice, you know. In fact, uh, the parent even say, why not me, God? Why didn't you take me? Yes. Why didn't you take me instead of my child? Because my child hasn't lived enough. Exactly. You know, so you find that sense of... Uh, uh, bargaining with God, why take me, bring mm -hmm. my son back, mm -hmm. bring my daughter back, take my life. That sense of death of a child is tragic in that sense. It's, it really disorganizes. It, it's, it, it sends families into all kinds of disarray, chaos. Yes. Uh, and it's, it's quite challenging when you come into a situation where the child is, is going to die. I had one occasion where I had the uh, had a, a newborn, and uh, the newborn was born without a brain. And the family knew that yes, the child was going to die, and they brought in hospice to take care of the the, the time as a child. And if you were to look at this child, you would have thought it would have been a perfectly normal birth and a perfectly normal child. Um, but uh, all it had was the the cortex, the brain cortex, which kept it, uh, which of course. Makes the, the baby suck, make the baby cry, make the baby pee and poo and all that good stuff that babies do. Uh, 
and to watch this family deal with this from the beginning of the birth. Uh, unfortunately, the, the parents were exceedingly young when this child was born, and there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of uh, denial that, of course, this couldn't happen, especially when you start seeing a child that is very sick and still knowing that. And the grandparents dealt with this great, and they would talk a lot about what was going to happen with the hospice, such as myself, the hospice chaplain. And we had some wonderful conversations because they knew that the dreams that this child was going to live a normal life was were, were shattered at birth. And, you know, they, 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 they grieved that and they were doing okay with that. I'm not so sure the parents were because the parents were doing a lot of behaviors that I felt were acknowledging the fact that they couldn't handle this very well. It's tough. Um, oh, it is exceedingly hard. It's, it's really hard. hard for any parent. Um, That's right. To go through this, and it's not only the parent, but the entire culture, the friends, the mm -hmm. family, the mm -hmm. neighbors. Uh, the death of a child is considered a greater loss in this culture because the child has not had the opportunities to live a full life compared to the adult or the elderly. The emotional and spiritual needs of dying children vary greatly from age to age and their intellectual ability. Uh, um, it's challenging, you know, just from the story oh, you were talking about, it, seeing mm -hmm. the grandparents are able to process it. There's a little distance between them and their grandchild. Yep. But for the parents, you know, being in, you know, going through this from birth and even, yeah, well, during the, the pregnancy and all yeah, that that's stuff. That's right. One of the things that was quite helpful was the, the rituals of the church for the family. And, and we need to remember those things for this child. For, the, for a child such as that who was born, uh, actually dying as they were being born, uh, for baptism, for name, name, naming the child. All of those things, are, of course, we know are very significant in, in identifying that this is a child that is worthy and a child of God, and that we need to make sure that those things are done and not get you know, caught up in, well, this is, this is why I want to do that. That's ridiculous. That is just an inappropriate and, a, and, and wrong way of thinking of this because this child is a child of God. Yeah, and you find that many um, religious parents or even Christian parents are in that kind of situation. You're saying you know, they ask for blessing Absolutely. or the baptism uh, mm -hmm. of the baby and all those rituals. So I think the chaplain should make themselves available even to explore the possibility. You know, they might want it, but they don't know. Mm -hmm. So part of uh, the therapeutic intervention, uh, your focus is on the parents and finding out, you know, you know what they need and being there for them and exploring their emotions, and the issues that they're dealing with, watching their infant child mm -hmm. you know, die. It uh, I found it refreshing in one way, under these circumstances, especially with the younger ones who are uh, in the the, the infant that is in the in the hospice situation is that families are a little more open to hearing the what's going on and doing the best they can at that point as far as not having a huge elephant in the room they know that it's going to happen and you know you just go walk the journey with them and tell them how sad it is which it is now as far as these older 
preschool children that are what we consider more self-sufficient. Mm. Uh, these are the ones that look at, uh, they can make some decisions for themselves, you know, what they're going to wear to school, uh, how to put their shoes on the wrong feet, that kind of thing. Uh, they see things black or white, it's good or bad. Uh, but they have a hard time when they find themselves sick. And, you know, they might not comprehend what they mean by a terminal illness. They just know they're sick. And what did I do to deserve this? What did I do? Did I do something wrong? And a lot of the therapy that, or, yeah, therapy that you would do with a child under those circumstances would be to identify those things that, to say that they're they're good and worthy. <laughs> you find that there's a lot of guilt in that age group, Absolutely, right? yes. Uh, they view their death as as a punishment, and so they have these feelings of rejection. And in most cases, you know, why um, why is God punishing me? Did I do something mm-hmm. terrible mm-hmm. against my parents? And so there's uh, it really for those younger patients that sense of feeling of rejection and punishment and guilt seems to be so strong um, for those patients. And, and to remind them time and time again that they are not being punished. Yeah. No, and try to remind them that, you know, uh, just be upfront and honest with them and develop some sort of a, a way to relate with them in a way that they, they can trust you. That you're not, you're not sugarcoating anything, but you're also not hiding anything. I think honest is important. Oh, it has to be. And, That's and so, number one. And sometimes, you know, because they are that young, they don't know the disease or the disease oh, process. So no, you can also no. provide education. Um, yeah, you can try that, but I think with yeah. the, you know, it's you got to try and hopefully help them also live their life as normally as they can That's until true. that time that that they can't. Or whatever the disease progress, the progression takes on the on the on the child. Uh, but those are you know for the for the parent, you know they're at a loss. Hmm. They're at a loss. The parents and siblings, uh, they see their little one there, and and you know those who do this, hopefully in the what we consider being a good fashion would be to, to be like you say, open, honest, uh, don't hide anything, and. Tell them it's okay to live with this disease. And, you know, if they ask you, if that child were to ask you, am I dying? I would suggest you be as honest as you can. And that would be a, probably a question that you would want to talk to the parents first before you actually were asked that by a child, because you wouldn't want to know what the parents want them, what you want the parents, excuse me, what the parents want you to say. Because sometimes they're so scared and so fearful of how their child is going to respond that they're not going to uh, want their child to be known. But they know already. I mean, I just no, so, yeah. I sincerely believe that they know what's going yeah. on without even saying I anything. think honesty is important. Uh, parents shouldn't hide um, any diagnosis from the child. The child needs to I, know I'm, and then be able to make decisions on their health care. I'm in concert with that entirely. So I think uh, part of the things, I think the, the chaplain, you can encourage the parents uh, uh, to create normal outlets for the child. Mm-hmm. You know, children like video games or some kind of activities that children like. Uh, just 
let the child continue to have those outlets. Oh, they got to have those outlets, whether they're coloring something, painting something, playing games with dolls or whatever it is to try and, you know, you can get a, gain a lot of insight if you have, you know, the, a child who's willing to have two dolls and have a conversation between them. All you have to do is listen to see what's going on, and you're gonna <laughs> you're creative. gonna find you're gonna find out in a hurry, <laughs> because kids are are not uh, they don't have any filters. They they're it's it's a sad day when you have a patient who is a child, but they can bring you so much energy and hope and love. And it's of course it's hard when they die. It is tough. So they, you can encourage the families to continue to let their friends, best friends come in. Absolutely. And hang out and uh, just try to normalize uh, the dying process. That's it's right. hard. It's that's hard. Right. It's hard and, for them. And yeah. that's why we have organizations like Make-A-Wish, you know, where they, they offer wishes to kids who are very, very sick. Maybe not dying, but still very, very sick and can't do things like they like if they were in a normal situation, the parents can't afford it, a lot of medical bills, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, those are the things that, you know, make some joys for that, that, that time is, that you're that in their life. That is because I remember, um, and that's, I like the, the concept of make a wish because we had a patient uh, who wanted to, to go watch uh, the Chicago Bulls play. Yep, uh, and that was one of his wishes. So the hospice was able to facilitate that and make it happen. Mm-hmm. And those things really help make the child feel alive. And seeing the child take pictures with the stars, oh yeah, you know, that's that he so had cool. watched on TV, even if he's dying, yeah, uh, that really made him happy. You know, and those spe- special moments like mm-hmm. that, you know, to help them accomplish some of their wishes. However. And it, it's all, you know, we we're, we talk about the, the grade school age child and, you know, those are kids that can really know what's going on and they can express themselves so well. Uh, they find themselves separated from their peers because of some of it, because of the illness itself, but because sometimes other parents are fearful that, you know, they might, their child might hurt that other child or do something that would be inappropriate, say something in the wrong or whatever. Uh, and then if you try to take their independence away and their self-confidence and their individuality, you know, that can, that can really make things very difficult for a child during this, a sick child at this time. That's where, like, again, the Make-A-Wish and the other, other organizations that help kids, uh, bring out their person. Yeah. And, you know, kids kids are great because they make they make some interesting choices when they can when they are allowed to use their minds. And I mean, you hear kids all the time who uh have visited someone who they, they've had a cancer and they they were in the hospital and they got well and the next thing you know they're making they're sending uh or doing a fundraiser for Christmas for kids who were in a hospital because they were there during Christmas. Uh, these kids are resilient, and they want to enjoy life just like all of us. And They, they want to they, do stuff. That's right. Yeah. They, want, they, they don't want to cause any problems for their family at this age group. They just know that uh, they want to make it better, and they can't.
And as the illness progresses in the child, the body which had provided uh, self-identity and control now becomes weak and disabled by the illness. Mm-hmm. This reality makes the child feel angry, resentful, and depressed. As the child at this age is more capable of, of understanding what is happening to them, there's a need for truthful and open communication about the illness. The chaplain can offer supportive presence, individual and family counseling sessions for the patient and their family members to help process the grief there. And, and that is significant that I think every hospice chaplain needs to remember in those counseling sessions, those family sessions. I mean, certainly you're going to spend some time with the individual, but not all the family members get to be involved in it. And, you know, you might have a sibling, and the sibling feels like they're being left out, they're not being included, and that can cause an enormous amount of uh, chaos and, and conflict within the family without them even knowing it. Uh, that's why the, 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 the whole thing you said before, Saul, about how we have to be open and transparent and all those other wonderful words we use to just say, you know, let them know what needs to be said and how we say it to them. Yes. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. really um, so family therapy can really help but we have to follow the methods that honor the family and their wishes exactly yeah. exactly it and you know so the chaplain has to ask the proper questions to find out in the context of family therapy who do you want to come who do you not want to come who the you know who the patient you know would appreciate to be there and all those why don't you want them there you see so all those things have to be explored. Yep. But I think um, uh, family therapy, uh, is, I, I like it in that you begin everyone to bring everyone on the same page in terms of grieving. Um, Especially with young children. That's yeah. very important for them to know that they're part of it. Yes. And it's, it's a participation thing where they, they are... It's like bringing your child <clears throat> to your grandparents death i think that's important too yeah but here we are talking about the child who is who is dying who is dying and they just need to know that all the everybody's involved in this with they them. need to know that they are valued that even oh, if they're young, without a doubt they are valued within the family within yep. that context um how about the uh, youth and teenagers uh they're a great group of people <laughs> <laughs> no, I love working with teenagers. I've always had the, uh, a connection with them. Yeah. 
And I had an occasion once where I had a <clears throat> uh, 16, I think he was 16-year-old teenager. Well, he's a teenager, 16-year-old who was dying of cancer. And uh, I, got a, I got asked to be involved in the family situation, and I would talk to the parents and get the opportunity. It took like two or three times to talk to the parents before I was allowed to go and meet with the, with the, the, the teenager. And when I had that opportunity, it was like a breath of fresh air for him because there was somebody in there who was listening to him. And that's where we need to know that when we start talking to these young people, that they have to know that they're being heard. And I, I think that goes all the way back to the preschooler. Mm. They have to know that they're not being dis, just pushed aside and that everybody else is making the decisions for them and that they have some say in what is going on in their lives. Uh, but this young man, uh, unfortunately, I came into his, his care uh, later on in his illness progression. And meeting with him and talking to him and hearing his desires of what he'd like to do before he died. And that was a very powerful experience to hear him talk about. Uh, I forgot exactly. I think he might have even wanted to just go fishing. Had a favorite place he wanted to go fishing. And I was trying to plan for that and trying to put that together. And unfortunately, uh, the parents didn't think it was necessary or didn't think it was right or fearful for what was going to happen. But this was, was his wish. This is what he wanted. That's what he wanted to do to fulfill his life. Yeah. And I don't so know. So he didn't how, go. He didn't go. He, didn't he wasn't go. allowed to go. And, uh, I mean, it broke my heart. Yeah. Uh, because this was, a, this was something that I knew I could do for him. And I help, could help with him. The, with the, with the process, mm -hmm. you know, with the grief process, knowing... You see, terminally ill teenagers, um, uh, their response to death and dying is not much different from adults. Exactly. But I want you to, you've worked a lot with teenagers. Uh, research shows that because of the developmental stage of teenagers, it makes their response to death more intense than those of adults. Did you find that to be true? Their response to them being... Their response to death is more intense their to their to knowing that they're dying is more... I don't... And according to the research, this is what it says, that the fear of pain and physical disability emerge as central concerns. And I think there's a point there, because oh, at I, that uh, age, image, body oh, image... Oh, body image is huge. Yes, yeah. of course it is. Uh, I didn't see the, the fear of pain. I did notice the physical disability aspect of it, yes... Yeah. You know, especially when you start talking about somebody who wants to go out and to go fishing, for instance, and they're fearful and that they can't can. walk. Yes. And they can't stand up and, th and do the casting of the... Yes, that, so that angers them. Yeah. That will anger them, and that will just frustrate them and, and really make them very depressed, Yeah, for no better term. So it says that the association between body image and identity and feelings of shame and disgrace over their physical conditions is intense. I believe that 100% because, yeah. you know, you start talking about a, a child who's going to be losing their hair. God, it's the worst thing in the world. You know, I don't want to lose my hair. I'm not, I don't want to lose my hair. I don't want to have to wear a hat or a wig or anything like that. Hmm. Uh, it's those, 
it's those patients who are able to discuss those things that will go along with the program. Yeah. By that, you have to have someone who is very willing to be open and honest with them and, and develop a really strong, good, cohesive relationship so that they know that they're not going to be taken advantage of and not just be told to do something because they don't, somebody doesn't want them to do that. Yeah. Or someone wants them to do something that they don't want to do. You see, for the terminally ill teenager, there is an acute sense of injustice of death. Mm -hmm. Dying teenagers rightly see themselves as being cheated out of a future. Absolutely. And this is hard to accept. So hostility and aggressive behavior is not unusual for terminally ill teens. The experience I've had with the few teenagers that I've had, that's correct. And those feelings need to be addressed. Oh, oh, without so a doubt. So how, oh, how does the chaplain, uh, how should the chaplain approach um, the terminally ill teenagers who is expressing hostility and who is aggressive? You know, you can have, a, you, you sit down and you talk to a, a, a teenager yeah. and, you know, find out what's going on in their life at that time. And, you know, and they still have contact with their friends. They still have things that they know that, that that's going on around them that they're not participating in because of their illness. Yeah. And get, so find and, and, a way to connect, right? And you find a way to connect, but then you ask the question, you know, how do you feel all about this? You know, and they're and they're not shy about letting you know how uh, how it upset them. You know, what do you expect? What do you think is? How do you think I'm going to feel? You know, here I am. I have to stay home on Friday night, and all these other people are going to parties and they're going out to dances or going out to football games, whatever it is that's going on. You feel cheated? Oh, absolutely. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, they're just you know, uh, pardon the expression, they're pissed off. And, and they're, you know, and if they don't have, and then they get even angry when they feel that they don't have anybody that can tell that to, they're not going to do it to, they, they might tell their friends, but the, you know, the friends are afraid to talk to them about that because they don't want to fear that. They don't want to hear that anger because their, their friend is dying. And who wants to hear that from, from their dying friend? They just want to have the nice conversation. Say, hey, you're cool. It's all right. Everything's fine. We're doing this. And then they don't come around because then they're doing things and they know that it upsets him. Him or her, and it's it's, it's a and very hard time for these kids. It is, and so chaplains and the psychosocial team have to be attentive to those. Also, depression is big among oh, big. teenagers, yes. and due to depression, teenagers with terminal illness may attempt to commit suicide. Sometimes their close friends empathize so much with them that uh, they, they it's common that they form a suicide pact. It's scary, but true. Yeah. And, and and I'm sure that every person who's listening to this is well aware of that. Is questions that need to be asked. You know, have you are you planning anything? And, and it's and, important and it's to still, talk you, to their close friends too. That's right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> talk to the family, the friends. Uh, talk to the patient themselves. And again, kids love honesty. They like forthright, truthful things, and. They are going to respond well to that as a, as a chaplain, counselor. Yeah. So they have to be monitored. Um, I think the entire psychosocial, psychospiritual team can monitor teen, uh, teens and their friends for suicide. They have to be willing to sit down with them, just like you would in any other kind of family gathering. Because, you know, frankly, teenagers have the, their second family are their friends. Yeah. And it's significantly important in their life, and especially under these times and circumstances, because they'll tell them 
many more things than they'll tell even us as chaplains yes. or especially they trust their, their parents. friends more. Absolutely. So yeah, so the friends have to be part of your therapeutic intervention as a chaplain. I believe so and wholeheartedly. For, you see, and sometimes we ignore that. Oh yeah, what do they know? <laughs> <laughs> They're only so. kids, right? They're only kids. They don't know anything. Don't mean to be sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> so for chaplains, counseling techniques must be adjusted to a developmental level of each dying child. Mm -hmm. In general, the task of chaplains in these situations is to provide information, support, and care for the dying child to assist both child and family. The chaplain can also employ family therapy sessions, as we spoke about earlier. In a family therapy approach, both the dying child and others in the family learn to communicate openly with one another. Parents often need help to manage their feelings of anger, of guilt, and help, uh, helplessness as they learn to help their child. And then they'll see that they've offered so much more help for their child than, than they'd ever thought they could because they're really then uh, walking the journey with them and not trying to make things better than they can. Thank you very much for joining us and for listening to this episode. This show is recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studios, and our engineer is Brian McKenna. Thank you for listening.